Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home of the world's greatest artist, TLC, Gladys Knight, India Ari, Indigo Girls, and Hartsfield Atlanta Jackson Airport, the Falcons, and Clark Atlanta University. This is The Bright Side with Technicia, a daily show with real people with real experiences. And now, here's your host, Technicia. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Bright Side with Technicia. Today is February 19, 2019, and I'm so glad to be here with you. Even though it is raining outside like cats and dogs, it's still another good day. We're going to always keep it positive. But I'm here with author and a doctor, Glenn Livingston, who will be teaching us why binge eating and overeating is, has become such a popular problem and how we can somehow conquer that situation um, at hand. But without further ado, I'd like to bring Dr. Glenn Livingston on. Dr. Glenn, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, and please call me Glenn. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. So, Glenn, you have done all your research in, in about bench eating. What kind of opened your insights to writing this book? Oh, boy. Well, uh, to tell you the truth, it was a personal endeavor more so than a professional endeavor. I did not set out originally to be a eating disorder therapist. I and, and by the way, what I offer is coaching and education as opposed to therapy because I want to be free to say things that my profession might not necessarily agree with. Um, but but um, I I had a very serious problem myself when I was 17 years old or so. I discovered a thing, which was that if you worked out for two and a half or three hours a day at six foot four with a reasonable amount of muscle, that you could eat whatever you wanted to. So I would have, you know, boxes of pizza, boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars, boxes of donuts. It really didn't matter. I I think I probably was having 7,000 calories a day, something like that. It was, um, I thought it was a lot of fun. I wasn't fat. I didn't think it was a problem. I worked out a lot, and I recovered from eating a lot, and I ate a lot. But So I was wasting a bunch of time, but um, I didn't think it was a problem. When I got a little older, I couldn't find the time to work out like that. And I was married, and I had responsibilities and patients, and I had to commute two hours each, each way to graduate school. And you know, I could maybe work out for two half hours a week, not two hours a day. I couldn't stop eating, though, and I just got fatter and fatter and fatter. And my triglycerides went way up. Um, they were more than 10 times what they were supposed to be. I, um, at one point, my weight ended at around 257. But then I stopped weighing myself, so I'm, I'm guessing that I was probably in the 280 range. I don't think I hit 300, but you never know. I was a fat guy. I was, I was a chubby guy. And the doctors were starting to yell at me and say, look, if you don't fix this, you know, most of the men in your family have had heart attacks and you'll probably have a heart attack in your 30s. So you really got to fix this. But I found that these foods had a life of their own. I, I couldn't stop. And I'd be sitting and working with a suicidal patient and thinking about when can I get the next pizza? Or I'd be working with a, with a couple right after an affair in the aftermath of an affair and, trying to piece together back their life, but I, I just couldn't do it. I was thinking about food. Um, thankfully, I never lost anybody, and of the hundreds of couples I saw, only two of them ever got divorced. But um, but it was it was a real struggle, and from a, coming from a family of psychologists where being a good psychologist was the most important thing to me, which really means much more than intellectually figuring out what people's psychological problems are. It means being present and lending them your soul 
and, and I just couldn't do it. So I tried to fix it in the way you'd think a psychologist would try to fix it, which is I went on the assumption that it wasn't what I was eating. It must be what's eating me. So maybe there's a hole in my heart, and if I could fill up that hole, then I wouldn't have to fill it up with food anymore. And I went to all the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and I took medication, and I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and I, I did all this very soulful journeying, which I don't regret. I, I learned an awful lot about myself, and I think in part I'm the person I am today because of that. But it didn't help with the binge eating. Things would get better, and then they get much worse. So it's like two steps forward and three steps back. And slowly things just got worse and worse. So eventually three things happened which flipped my ideas about what was causing it and what had to be done on its head. So I'll tell you in advance that the conclusion I came to was that I didn't have to heal the hole in my heart. What I had to do was be more like an alpha wolf that was being challenged for leadership. It's like there was this bodily organ um, in, in, my, in my lizard brain. That's where the seat of uh, food addiction is. Most addiction is in the lizard brain. And it, it was pressing for control, the same way that your bladder presses for control when you're full, the same way that your ovaries or your testicles tell you to go kiss this attractive person. But you don't go kiss attractive people on the street. You decide a particular time and place and way that that can happen. And if you're sitting in a, the middle of a, of a conference, you don't just drop trow and pee. You excuse yourself and go to the bathroom and do that in a particular way in a particular time and place too. So you're in control, even though these bodily organs challenge with a very strong impulse, a very strong biological drive. And so that, that was my solution. I was going to have to be more like the alpha dog dealing with the challenger. And <clears throat> excuse me, when the, when, the alpha, when the alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, mm-hmm. well, somebody, somebody needs a hug, right? It says, hey, you know, step, get out of line, get back in line or I'll kill you. It's that type of attitude. So here's what happened. I, I'm sorry, Technicia, did you want to say something? Was I ever talking to you? Uh, no, no, uh-uh. go ahead, Glenn. Okay, so, so the first thing that gave me that idea was that mm-hmm. I did this, this 40,000-person study. I, I don't have children. I never commuted. I had a career um, both clinically working with children and families and then also consulting for industry like big food, big pharma, kind of wish I didn't do it, but I did. And I knew how to do these big studies, so I did one for myself. And over the course of about five years, I got thousands of people to take a survey on the Internet, which essentially told me the foods that they struggled with and the areas of their life that they were unhappy with. And what I found were three interesting things, that people who struggled with chocolate, like me, my binges usually started with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggled with soft, chewy, starchy things like bread and bagels or pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And people who struggled with hard, crunchy things, crunchy, salty things like pretzels and chips, they tended to be stressed at work. And so I thought, well, this is really fascinating. Let me, before I start working with clients about this, let me go talk to my mom because she's a therapist and she raised me and... She also happens to have a chocolate addiction, and if anybody would know, she would know. So I said, hey, Mom, look, I'm in a bad marriage, so I understand that things are, um, you know, I, it, this kind of makes sense that I'd be struggling with chocolate from this study's perspective, but what is it in my upbringing? What happened to me that might have made me rent the chocolate whenever I was upset? And she gets this horrible sound in her voice, and she sounds so upset. I said, Mom, it's okay. Whatever it is, I forgive you. It's a long time ago, but I just need to know. She says, well, when you were about one year old, your, um, your father, this is 1965, your father was a captain in the Army, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified because we were working on having a second kid, and I thought I was going to be a single mother. What happens if he gets killed? I could be a single mother. At the same time, my father, your grandfather, he just got out of prison, and I have to tell you, I'd spent my whole life adoring this man. He was the only really safe harbor for me in a very frightening world. And it turns out that he was doing these things and he was guilty. And my world really fell apart. So I was really depressed and anxious. 
and half the time I'd just be sitting and staring at the wall. And when you came running to me, asking to be fed or hugged or loved, I didn't have it. I just didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you all the time. So I kept a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup on the floor in a refrigerator. And I say, Glenn, mm-hmm. go get your Bosco, right? And I go running over to the Bosco and I suck on the bottle and I go into a chocolate sugar coma. And Technicia, if, if this were the movies, then I could tell you that mom and I had this great big cry and a great big hug and I never had trouble with chocolate again. Well, and I, you know, we did, it was a good conversation to have and we did have a cry and a hug, but, um, and I learned an awful lot about her, but from a practical perspective, my binge eating of chocolate got worse. And the reason was that there was this voice inside me that seemed to justify it. It said, Hey, Clint, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. She left a great big chocolate sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love Mm. of your life, you're going to have to go right on binging. Yippee. Let's go get some. So that, that was something that really changed my mind. I said, wow, this, this food seems to have a life of its own. It doesn't really matter what the hole in my heart was. Clearly, this is where the pattern was set up. But knowing that didn't really help. The second thing that happened that made me realize I had to take more aggressive control rather than trying to you know, nurture my inner wounded child back to health was I was doing all this consulting for big food. And I saw that they were mm-hmm. spending bil- they're spending billions of dollars engineering these hyper-palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and sodium. And, and, and it's all targeted at our lizard brains with the idea of hitting our bliss point without giving us enough nutrition to make us feel satisfied. And, and, and they're, like there are rocket scientists, so to speak, working on this kind of thing, and there's a lot of money going into it. On top of that, the advertising industry, and most people think advertising doesn't affect them, but I hate to tell you it affects you more when you think that because your sales resistance is down. The ad industry is spending billions more to convince us that we can't live without these things, that this is what we actually need to survive. This is where the good stuff is. And so there are five to 7,000 messages a year beamed at us about food. How many of them do you think are about fruit and vegetables, having more whole, fresh, ripe, raw fruit and vegetables? Maybe a half a dozen, maybe a dozen. So, so you know, there are these tremendous forces in the world that are aligned, uh, aligned against our best interest in this way. Oh, and then there's the addiction treatment industry that says you can't quit even if you want to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time even though there's no real evidence of that. So I I put that all together and I was doing some reading in alternative addiction treatment from Jack Trimpey, a book called Rational Recovery. And he made it really clear to me that the lizard brain, which is the reptilian brain, the oldest part of our anatomy in the brain, that it, it really doesn't know love. And, to take another author's words, when the lizard brain evaluates something in the environment, it thinks, do I eat it, do I meet with it, or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There's no love there. There's no spirituality or music or art or creativity or concern for tribe or family or relationships. It's just uh, certainly not long-term goals like weight loss and health. It's, It's just eat, mate, or kill. And so all these things came together, and they just overwhelmed me, and I said, I have to take a much more aggressive approach. Who cares about whether I'm lonely or depressed or upset? Who cares about what caused this? The problem is that now there's this fire burning and it's out of control and I got to get it back in the fireplace. Here's what I did. And I want, I want you to know that I never intended to publish this. I wasn't even going to necessarily work with other people about it. It was just going to be my private thing because it's a little embarrassing. That's why I say that. What I did was I decided that my reptilian brain, that bodily organ that was causing all this trouble, I decided that was going to be my inner pig. And then I drew a really clear line in the sand, a really bright line, so I would know what healthy eating was and healthy eating wasn't. And to start with, it was just something like, I'll never eat chocolate during the week again. I'll only ever have chocolate Saturday and Sundays. Really, really clear line, so I knew exactly what it was. And then if I heard any voice in my head that was suggesting that I should have chocolate during the week because, you know, well, Glenn, you exercised hard enough and you don't really 
you could really get away with it. Or you could start again tomorrow. Or, hey, Glenn, you know, chocolate grows in a cocoa bean, which is from a plant, and therefore it's a vegetable. What, whatever that voice was saying, I decided that was pig squeal. And the thing it was squealing for was pig slop. And I would say, wait a minute, I don't want that. My pig does. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous as that sounds, as crude and primitive and embarrassing as that is for a sophisticated psychologist like me to admit, that's what eventually gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and remember who I was and how I wanted to be around that particular food. And it wasn't a miracle. It's not like the first time I did that that I just stopped overeating entirely. But what did happen immediately was that I recognized that I had more power than I ever thought that I had before. I had more power and control. Okay. And, I, and then very slowly I managed to recover. I started waking up and making the right decision and more and more frequently until it, was, until it really stuck. And I eventually became how a person who just doesn't eat chocolate. Glenn, how oh. long did it take for recovery? It was different with different pieces of it. So there were different foods I was really addicted to. So for chocolate, for example, okay. I think it was maybe six months to a year where part of the problem was that I was trying to work it out to have some. And for me personally, not for everyone, but for me personally, chocolate something that I really just shouldn't have. So I was trying to come to terms with the fact that I shouldn't have any. Um, and that took me six months to a year. A, a lot of people can recover instantaneously or almost instantaneously uh, if they have come to, come to terms with where that food needs to be in their life. But, um, you yeah, it was pretty quick. It was, it, was, it was not a miracle, but pretty quick. And certainly better than the 30 years of flailing around and struggling that I've been doing to that point. And that, that's my story. That, that's, that's how it happened. I didn't mean to publish it. Um, <clears throat> I published it as a favor to <clears throat> excuse me, I'm so sorry. Uh, published it as a favor to um, the CEO of a company I had a minor, minor stock in. And, um, and he was an expert on, on book marketing. And um, I thought it was going to languish in some dark corner of Amazon. I thought, Nobody wants to hear about a psychologist who has a pig inside him, and I was wrong. <laughs> so we have 600,000 copies in distribution. And Say that again. I am. I'm glad that this was published, Glenn. I know that it was hard for you to come to terms with that, but I'm glad that it was because it's beneficial for others to understand the trauma, the dangers early on of what they're going through that some might not even be aware of the stages and the development of binge eating disorder. They might not know how to handle it and how to cope with it and how to develop themselves better with it. So I'm glad this book was um, published and brought out. Now, you speak on, you mentioned the pig, and, of course, referencing to your book, your pig is not you. Because when you think of binge eating, you think of a, a person being like a pig, eat everything. That's the first association people think of. So can we explain in terminology of more of what you're meaning of the person not being the pig themselves? Yeah, it's, um, it's an artificial distinction. But what I found okay. is that it's, <clears throat> it's best to separate your constructive versus your destructive thinking and act as if it were two different entities, two different mental entities. And you have the right to organize your thinking into whatever way you want to, so you can definitely do that. And so, for example, if I say I will never eat chocolate again, then any thought, feeling, impulse, or image that suggests that I will ever have chocolate again is that, that's, um, that's pig squeal. That's the definition of pig squeal is any destructive thought that suggests I'm going to break my rule. And my constructive self are any thoughts that say I'm going to stick with my role. The reason that's helpful is that you can then purge your mind of doubt and distraction. You can say that I'm 100% confident that I will never have chocolate again, even if my pig has other ideas. And the ability to purge your mind like that turns out to help you accomplish the goal it's kind of like an Olympic archer that's aiming for the bullseye. And 
before a really good archer lets go of the arrow, they're not thinking, maybe I'll hit it, maybe I won't. They're seeing the arrow go into the bullseye. It's almost like they're one with that bullseye. And all of the doubt and uncertainty and all the energy that that could drain is cast out of them. Now, if they make a mistake, if they miss the arrow, if they miss the bullseye, they take stock of what went wrong. Maybe they didn't account for the wind. Maybe they didn't pull the arrow back far enough. Maybe their stance was a little off. And they reset and aim at the bullseye again. They don't, they don't self-flagellate. They don't say, oh, my God, you're a pathetic archer. You might as well shoot all the rest of the arrows up in the air. They just get back up and, and do it again. So separating your constructive from your destructive thoughts and making a conscious choice to identify with your constructive thoughts by saying, the pig is not me, that, um, that allows you to develop an identity, a success identity, that uh, channels more and more of your energy into constructive goal achievement. It's the psychology of winning. Right. right. To kill all that inner thought, I can't even imagine where anyone could actually be going through just dealing with this. Um, to me, it's interestingly complex, yet all all too common. This is becoming popular. You be, you become, to me, it's almost like you become a, a chronic dieter. You're trying your best to do right, but at the same time, your mind playing a part in it. Okay, I need you to eat more. Yeah, well, well, this is why people struggle so much. They don't recognize that they're of two minds. This is why people, yes, when, when they're in their right mind, they can read a book and be all gung-ho about going on this diet on Monday morning, and then Monday afternoon they're at Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar on the counter and, and they're off to the races. It's because the the lizard braid takes over. It, it generates a very strong drive. The other reason that people don't realize, most people who have struggled with overeating or, or like more formal binge eating, they're not just addicted to the binge eating part of the cycle or the overeating part of the cycle. They're actually addicted to dieting also. It's a feast and famine cycle that they're stuck in because usually they, they overeat and then they gain a little weight and then they're very uncomfortable about the weight that they gained. And as a consequence, they try to lose it really fast. They'll decide that, well, maybe I'll just have juices for a couple of days or you know, maybe I'll go on a orange fast and I'll have 500 calories of oranges or something. And, and, then, and then what happens is they're putting their body into an undernourished state and they're signaling the brain okay. that the body goes... I'm sorry? No, I was agreeing. I was saying, okay. Yeah, yeah. So they, they signal their brain that they're, they're in an environment where food is not plentiful, where it's difficult to get enough calories and nutrition. And if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that if we believe that we're in an environment where calories and nutrition are scarce, that the moment that we signal the brain that they're available, there'd be some mechanism inside of us that said, you'd better hoard these. You'd better get as much as you can while you're well, getting as good. So um, I forgot what question you asked that led me to that, but I thought that was an important part of the story. To, to overcome this, you need to regularly and reliably nutrify your body. You need to, um, you, you know, you should have breakfast the day after a binge, as my friend Wendy Hendry likes to say. You should um, definitely have breakfast the day after a binge and don't make up for a binge with just a couple of days of fasting and over-exercising. Make up for a binge with two weeks of normality. Mm-hmm. It's, um, and of course, in the book, we talk about battling with the pig. And if it's uncomfortable for you, don't don't go any farther and try to read into it because it can become a little. It can become mind-boggling trying to get all this, and you might be getting upset. But what are some ways when you're okay? You battling with this. Can you still be able to create a food plan while you're battling with this, or does it take for you to have to fully recover? Well, you can create a food plan whenever you want to. Um, okay. You, you know, r- rules are better than guidelines. This is one of the major discoveries. Rules are really better than guidelines. 
most of our culture eats according to the belief that we should eat healthy 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time, or something like that, which is a good North Star. It's a good guiding principle, and I'm all in favor of guiding principles. The problem, though, in implementation is that it requires you to make decisions all day long, because every time you're in front of a chocolate bar, if your rule is, well, I avoid it 90% of the time and I eat it 10% of the time, you're going to have to make another decision. Is this part of the 90% or part of the 10%? The problem with that is that decisions wear down your willpower. There's a whole series of research studies about ego depletion that suggests that our that there are only so many good decisions we can make over the course of a day. And so if you are trying to live by guidelines rather than rules, you're unnecessarily spending your willpower. And this is why so many people do well most of the day and they get home at night and they just, they just blow it. So, um, so we want to use, we want to use hard and fast rules rather than, rather than guidelines. We want to say, you know, I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again because then all of my chocolate decisions are made all week long. But by the way, people get frightened of the word never. And I don't mean it in the traditional sense. I mean it in the same way that you would tell a two-year-old that she could never, ever, ever cross the street without holding your hand, which is what I told my niece Sarah when she was little. You can't ever, 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 ever cross the street without holding my hand. I told her that even though I knew that in five or six years, I'd probably teach her to look both ways and cross by herself. The reason I told her that was because she's not mature enough to entertain even the image of starting out into the street by herself. I don't want her even thinking about it. The same thing with our inner pig. At the moment of impulse, our inner pigs are no more mature than two-year-olds, and they're not capable of really integrating things in such a logical context. So we present it to them as if the rule is set in stone, but we can change it whenever we want to. We can, um, you know, I like to have people sit down and write out exactly what they want to change and why and then give it 24 hours before it takes effect so there's no impulsivity involved. Um, but you, you don't have to be frightened of the word never. That's, that's right, you don't. But I don't, I don't want anyone to get afraid of it either because we're never going anywhere because we're going to come back with Glenn and we're going to discuss a little bit more on bitch eating, some, some productive ways that you can incorporate into your daily life on how to cope with this issue that you're actually having. Um, and if you know of anyone experiencing this, please make sure you get that help for them. But we're going to explain all that when we come back after this commercial break. Thought it was over? Not yet. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Blog Talk, Blog Talk Radio, baby. It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to. Nope. I'm sure you've got a perfectly good excuse. Kids, work, <laughs> I get it. You're busy. So what better time than now? Let's begin. Raise one finger if you're a man. Ladies, none yet. Oh, count in your head if you're driving. Now, three more fingers for everyone over 60, two over 50, one over 40, one more if you're not physically active. Another finger if anyone in your family has type 2 diabetes. Another if you've got high blood pressure. If you're overweight, raise another finger. Two if you're very overweight. And three if you're really overweight. You've just taken the world's first audio pre-diabetes test. And if you're holding up five or more fingers, visit doihaveprediabetes.org or talk to your doctor. There's no excuse because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. All right, we're back with Glenn Livingston, who's talking about his book, Never Binge Again. And we're going over the ways of helping yourself through this process. It's never too late to seek that actual help, and it's not something to be ashamed of. I really just want to let people know, because you're not a bad person. There are just so many avenues out there for the help, and just find something that actually works. It doesn't have to keep being the way it actually is. But at what point did others start noticing this from you, Glenn? Um, because was it were you able to hide any of this, or 
did, did somebody find out about it as much? Um, did people, you're asking me, did people know that I was a binge eater? Yes, sir. Well, they knew I was fat. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm 6'4", <laughs> and I wore it well. I, I, I'm 6'4", I wore it well, and I I had, you know, nice suits, and I dressed well, and um I spent a lot of my years in business, so I ran in circles where there are a lot of other fat, tall, white men. Um, so I didn't feel that out of place most of the time. I, I did feel out of place with my patients. I felt like I was a healthcare provider, and it was something hypocritical for me to be um, sitting there and obviously overweight. So that that part bothered me a lot. But um, But nobody was really saying, Glenn, I think you should lose some weight. My, my wife at the time wasn't really bothering me about it. I, um, I, I had a psychotherapist who was bothering me about it and said that I was really taking some risks. But I, I think our society, we have a tacit agreement to all kill ourselves slowly with food, if you look at the way people are eating. Mm-hmm. And part of that tacit agreement is to have a distorted image of what a healthy body weight really is and part of that agreement is to not really confront each other about um you know the risks that we're taking so i i did not get a lot of comments about it however when i stopped binging and started eating well and losing weight what i did notice was suddenly everybody was smiling at me and i think in part people were smiling at me because they were always smiling at me, and I just wasn't present because I was so busy thinking about food that I didn't notice it. The other thing that I think is that, you know, I lost weight and I was a little more handsome, and and um, I held myself with my head a little higher. But um, so I know that people must have noticed there was a difference in the way that I interacted with the world. But um, yeah, I I didn't I wasn't taking a lot of direct criticism or embarrassment. It was. It was more like it was grading on my own sense of well-being and integrity to, you know, not just to be heavy, but to be so obsessed with food and always thinking about where the next chocolate bar was going to come. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my answer. No, that's, that is, um, that's a wonderful answer altogether. Now, at some point, because there's so many misconceptions out here, so what's probably one of the most frustrating misconceptions you ever encountered? Um, well, the most frustrating misperception is the idea that you need to love yourself thin and that in order to do that, you can't distinguish between healthy and unhealthy foods. There is an approach to overeating which says that um, you really have to learn to listen to your body and what it wants. And... I don't think that's all wrong. I, I think that um, I think if we were living in the environment in which we evolved, if we were living in the tropics 100,000 years ago, then I think listening to your body would be perfect. But the problem is there's so many billions of dollars that have gone into engineering these substances and messages that overtake your better judgment that I don't think it's really possible to just intuitively eat what's good for you and especially especially once that meter is broken um, I, I think that what happens for a lot of people that struggle with overeating and binge eating is that their their full meters have been broken and their nutrition meters have been broken but for example I, I believe that the foodstuffs that are being engineered actually hijack our survival drive. They actually do make us feel like we need what's in those bags and boxes and containers to survive. And I'm going to draw Mm -hmm. an analogy to, I'd like to draw an analogy to a set of animal studies, which were done in the 50s and 60s by psychologists Milner and Olds, and then their colleagues and and, um, forebears, where they short-circuited the pleasure centers in not exactly the same way we're talking about short-circuiting the pleasure centers with these chemicals, but um, they still did it. They actually went in and directly inserted an electrode into these animals' pleasure centers in the brain. And they wired those electrodes. I know, I know. 
they wire those electrodes to a lever and let the animal push the lever as often as it want as they wanted to. They started with rats and then they went up the chain to higher mammals and I think even humans. What they found was that when the animal was allowed free reign to press the lever, they would press it thousands of times per day. That's all they wanted to do. So then they decided, <clears throat> well, would it prefer the lever to something it really did need for survival, like food? So they took starving rats, and they gave them food, but they also gave them access to the leader, to the lever. And you know that those rats pushed that button thousands of times a day and ignored their food. They were starving, but they preferred to push the pleasure mechanism lever, the pleasure button. Nursing mother rats would abandon their pups and go press that lever. Really, what we're seeing is that a short-circuiting of the pleasure centers in the, in the brain, it, um, it causes your survival drive to, to be abandoned. And so I don't think anybody's putting electrodes in our brain, but I do think that there's a close proximity involved with the um, food substances that are being engineered. And, you know, if you walk out of a McDonald's in most cities, you can see a Burger King across the street. And what does that say about the number of pleasure buttons that are available to us? And, and is it any wonder that people don't like fruit and vegetables anymore? So, um, so yeah, I, I think that um, – I forgot the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> can you bring me back to the I question? Glenn, no, the question I, I love it. I love it, Glenn. Basically, you, you did answer it. You answered it in the beginning. The most frustrating misconception you've encountered – um, yeah. With all that, I, I would probably like to see the relationship between binge eating and food addiction um, further explored because we hide those things and we we shown away from we don't want to talk about those. There's a lot of things we don't talk about. That's not something that's brought up in a household on binge eating. And as you said, people appear to you as being fat or, okay, you're just overweight and not understand that you may be actually going through a crisis in your in your life. It seems like it's a mental crisis, too, because it's all part of your brain. As you mentioned in your book, the pig, the pig is still playing with you. The pig is telling you, okay, to eat this food. Okay, don't do this. Even part right now, you probably read his book. You're like, okay, I, I'm not understanding. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to just keep eating. Um, he's crazy or something like that. You know, the negative thoughts are apparent, but definitely I would love for them um, father explore that well well so first of all I don't necessarily if you want to some people wonder do they have binge eating disorder or not you could google binge eating disorder and look at the criteria it has to do with how frequently you have episodes and how much self-loathing there is and, and that kind of thing um, I think it's an artificial distinction I think that if you find yourself eating beyond your own best judgment with any regularity, that you could use some attention to this way of thinking in order to try to gain more control. And all you really need to do is come up with one rule. What's the single most difficult trigger food or behavior that you struggle with? And come up with one rule. Maybe for me it was chocolate. So I said I'll never eat chocolate during the week again. For other people it has to do with being more mindful. So Maybe they'll say, I'll always put my fork down between bites, or I'll never eat in the car again, something like that. Um, so the distinction between are you quote-unquote sick or not, I think, is an artificial distinction. Right. And I don't really believe that binge eating is a disease. I, I think that – I don't actually believe addiction is a disease. I think that we have conscious control, and I think the research suggests that we have the ability to, um, you know, to stop and get off of just about any substance if we want to, particularly food if we need to. Um, so I, I think that we don't have a disease. People who struggle with overeating have healthy appetites that have been corrupted by industry for a profit. I think that every time that you've got your nose buried in the bottom of a bag box or container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache laughing, that's laughing all the way to the bank. So, um, so I, I, 
I don't necessarily endorse all of these tests. Do you have binge eating disorder or not? Because then what happens if you're two points short of, of the criteria, just say, well, your pig's going to say, well, we can go binge some more then. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. If you're, if you've listened this far in the podcast, the odds are that you're struggling a little bit and, um, why not, why not take this free step to see if it does you any good or not? You know, uh, come up with a name for your inner food enemy. It doesn't have to be a pig. It can be your food demon. It could be your junkyard dog, whatever you want to call it. Kids often seem to do well by calling it some, like the name of a school bully or someone that um, they don't like at school or something. But, but um, yeah, so I don't, I don't think we have a disease. I think we have a healthy appetite that's been corrupted by industry. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not a, it's not a disease, it's not something that's uh, catchable or anything. It's just something that that you have to cope. You have to learn how to cope with it. It takes baby steps because everybody don't go through the same recovery. But Glenn, what has it taught or given you, and can you find humor in it? Could you say that again? Yes, sir. What what has it taught or given you? And can you find humor in it? Oh, I find tremendous humor in it every day. I think my pig is really creative when it says things <laughs> like chocolate com- chocolate comes from a cocoa bean which grows in a plant, and that means it's a vegetable. Um, I think that in some ways it's funny that the solution was so simple when I spent 30 years and Gosh, I can't tell you how many tens of thousands of dollars I spent on psychotherapy and psychiatrists and medication and stuff. Um, some ways I think it's funny that the solution was a lot simpler than I ever thought it was going to be. Um, and I find a lot of humor and great relief when, I, when people see their own pigs and recognize that they have more power than they think that they have. So I do find humor in it. However... When people are in the midst of it, it can be like not having a life. I mean, you can feel like someone's got a gun pointed at your head telling you ignore everything else and just eat and think about eating and organize your life around eating. It's, it's, it's just awful. It's just awful. But there, the other side of the wall is a lot closer than you think. The wall isn't quite as high as you think. It's um, like if you're flailing around in the mud and you've got some caught in your mouth and your lungs, you probably feel like you're dying. But the truth is you just need to stand up and you're going to be uncomfortable for a little bit and you have to work a little bit to clean yourself up. But you can just stand up and walk away. So, yeah, that's that's what it's like. Okay, and because you went to recovery. Well, what did recovery look like for you at that time while you were going through it? It was a little at a time for me. I I... And like I said, it's I, I didn't have the book to help me. I you know what happened was I kept a journal for eight years and it was me versus all the crazy things that my pig said and first I had to find the logical flaws in all of them and then eventually I realized that if I just knew it was the pig then there was no point in arguing with it at all. I just would not listen to it. Um so what did it look like for me? Well, and so at first I got chocolate under control and then I got sugar under control and then I got flour under control and then I got rid of dairy and gluten in my diet in particular. And that, that was huge for me because I didn't realize that that was creating so much inflammation in my body and my rosacea and eczema and psoriasis, they basically went away. Um, and I think there was something about the inflammatory process that was making me crave them more. And so the cravings went away when I got that out of my diet. And um, like I said, I was never going to publish it. I, I was, what I was doing before this was, you know, running a coach training organization. And um, this was like just before I got divorced. And um, I, I wrote the book on a whim for as a favor to a to a business partner. So. Um, what, and then when I started working with clients on it, which was, I guess, back in around 2015, I suddenly felt 
quantum leaps stronger. I suddenly felt like this all came together in a system and it was logically coherent and it didn't matter what my pig said. It didn't matter what anybody's pig said. I could see and hear it as the pig. I could see and hear it with just this voice of justification. I started to understand that the um, you didn't have to fix all your emotional conflicts to stop binge eating. And, you know, if you stop overeating, if you stop binge eating, that doesn't guarantee you're going to be happy. It just fixes your mm-hmm. eating problem. Because you can be, um, like, I, I went through a really, really bad financial time in from like 2003 to 2006. I lost $2 million that I didn't have. And interestingly, losing $2 million is not like losing your keys. You don't have to have them before you lose them. But I, I lost all that money. I was very deep in debt. And I tell everybody, at that time, I I binged on chocolate and pizza, essentially, to um, to get through it. And I wound up fat, sick, and broke. And I tell them, wow. I, I could have I just been broke. And it, it's better to be broke than to be fat, sick, and broke. So oh. if you have six, six problems and then you overeat, then there's seven problems. And those insights were a big part of the recovery for me because I, um, especially as a psychologist, I really believe that you had to understand the root cause of everything and analyze everything to death. When I finally realized there was a very practical, easy way to just change the behavior, I felt better about myself naturally because I got thinner. I felt better about myself because I looked healthier. I felt better about myself because I was in integrity with what I said I was going to do. I suddenly had the ability to, you know, set out a plan and follow it. And um, so that, that's what it was like for me. It's all kinds of wonderful things evolved. And then I got to help people. And then my book really took off. And it's often the number one on Amazon for weight loss, at least on the Kindle side, um, Kindle free side. So um, yeah, right, right now I feel blessed feel like I'm, I'm on a mission to help a million people a year stop binge eating. I don't make nearly as much money as I used to. I used to make more money when I did corporate consulting and I had a full clinical practice, but I make enough to pay the bills and um, I'm really happy every day doing what I do. I know you are, and I'm glad that you're able to help others conquer conquer that situation. And, but you mentioned that because you stop binge eating, it won't, it won't find help you to find your happiness. So how do you go about finding your happiness? Well, <laughs> I mean, there are a million ways to do that. That's, that's the quintessential question. I think people are naturally happier when they're not binge eating. I think there's a part of that. I think that being present is a big part of being happy. I think that we have to distinguish between happiness and contentment. I think um, I, I think that part of the problem with our society today is that we're really addicted to overstimulation. If you look at the if you look at the foods that we're eating, these concentrated forms of pleasure that don't. I mean, there were no chocolate bars on the savanna, right? There there were no donuts on the savanna. There were no chips in the tropics as we were evolving. These are forms of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. And another word for that is a drug. Like it's an, it's an artificial concentration of pleasure that is sold for a profit. And I think that we're addicted to that level of stimulation. See, if you look at the, you know, look at the, look at the movie trailers next time you go to the movies, how many car crashes and explosions and, you know, semi-naked women do you see in the first 60 seconds of the, car, of the trailer? And you think that's normal. You're, you're, um, you don't realize that in nature you would never be exposed to that level of stimulation. And as a consequence, people tend to associate happiness. They're seeking an intense level of stimulation when I would prefer the word contentment. I, I drive my life towards feeling content rather than happy necessarily. I have moments of extreme happiness. I have moments of depression, but most of the time I feel content. And I think a big part of that 
is because I've given up the quest for the intensity of stimulation, of, of overstimulation. I'm not a monk. I don't lock myself in the closet. I, you know, I do seek some stimulation, but I'm looking for more natural stimulation as opposed to the artificial stimulation. And I, I think that really does lead to, well, at least the contentment. It doesn't lead to a manic high. I think people try to get high with food, but it leads to, um, to a sense of well-being. And there's a sustainability about it. You're, you don't feel like you're chasing the dragon. You don't feel like you're going to crash any minute. I mean, sugar will get you high for anywhere between 18 and 39 minutes, right? But then when it's over, there's that impending crash that lasts a few hours. And we know that that's going to be over, and so we seek more sugar to forestall that crash and then more sugar to forestall that crash, and that's part of why we – that's part of what – of the physiological reason that we binge is because we're anticipating the um, the blood sugar crash. So if you don't overstimulate the blood in the first place, then you don't have to worry about the crash. And I think that the path to quote-unquote happiness is – much more um, squarely in that domain than in the chasing stimulation domain. So I don't know what you think about that answer, but that's my best one. No, I think that was a reasonable answer, Glenn. But it seems like it's still hard, Glenn. I know that you recover from it, but how can one, how can you truly control yourself? I mean, because you can't deprive yourself of food. You don't want to have malnutrition. This this thing. It, well, that, that's a good it, point. You go into the future. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Glenn. Well, there are certain rules you can't make, and whatever rules you do make, you need to be sure that your plan is nutritionally complete. And there are all types of websites that will help you, like Chronometer.com or MyFitnessPal or something, and where you can talk to a licensed dietitian, which I'm not, by the way. I'm not a medical doctor or a nutritionist or dietitian. I'm, I am a psychologist who figured out a weird way to stop overeating himself and um, you know, offers this as just pure information. But, but um, there are some rules you can't make. If the rules you make are too restrictive, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You couldn't make a rule that said, I will never pee again, for example, because it's going against your biological needs. You can't make a rule that says, I'll never eat again, because your body's going to force you to do that, or else you're going to die. So you need to make sure that it's nutritionally complete and that you're getting enough calories. I don't like when people lose more than two pounds a week. I almost always see people bounce back and do worse after that. So the fastest way to lose weight is slow. That's the fastest way to get over things. So um, how do you truly control yourself? It's, you know, you remember that you can always use the present moment to be healthy. Remember that you don't have to worry about what happens tomorrow, only what happens right right freaking now. The only time you can feed yourself is now. So if you never binge now, you'll never binge again. Um, you know, the, the future is an infinite string of now. It's like Jack Trampy likes to say. Um, and you... You ruthlessly root out and eliminate any notion that you're powerless or out of control. If you ruthlessly root that out and eliminate it, then what's left are decisions. And since most people want to be healthy, it's not always thinner, sometimes it's just healthier, sometimes it's heavier too, but most people want to be healthier when they recognize that they are totally in control and their pig can't overtake them, then they slowly but surely make the right decisions. That's what I find. Okay. But I do hear that word all about having control, but in all, there is really, it it isn't a guaranteed fix or a cure at all, but I believe that perhaps the society could just see that that it's not greed or laziness you know, then that stigma might be just lifted off some and people could really get that support that they need and the help they need and no longer feel judged for something they really feel that they have no control over. The the feeling that you're out of control is real. And Yes, sir. See, I, I think we should turn shame into anger. I, I think that people mm-hmm. are getting rich off our misery 
And I, I think that okay. we should stand, stand up and look at um, what's happening in our society and have more regulations and, you know, more policing of industry so that it's not possible to to profit off of someone's misery in this way. But um, and I and I do think that fat shaming is a problem in our society. I, b- I believe that. I believe in beauty at any size. I don't necessarily believe in health at any size, but I believe in beauty at any size. And I think that, you know, we need to take a hard look at the uh, cultural model of thinness and beauty that we're promoting in the movies and magazines and on the Internet and, um, you know, try to accept people for who they are and where they are. And, you know, that would be... That would that would help people to ask for help and um, you know and get started rather than feeling like they had to hide at home with a bag of chips. Well, I'm hoping after today's show, someone actually seeks that help. Glenn, tell us where we can actually purchase your book from. Well, I don't. You don't have to purchase it if you don't want to. You, I mean, you could purchase a physical copy if you want to. But if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red button, neverbingeagain.com, big red button you'll see a place where you can sign up for the reader bonus lists. And you'll get three really cool things if you do that. The first one is a copy of the book itself in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. You'll also get links to where you can buy it in physical format or audible format if you prefer. But we also created a set of food plan starter templates, which are sets of rules that you might consider adopting for yourself and modifying so you can own them. Uh, And it, it doesn't matter what dietary philosophy you follow, if it's ketogenic or high carb or low carb or macrobiotic or vegan or point counting or calorie counting, whatever it happens to be, you can find a set of rules that are hypothetical starters, you know, a template that you can get started with right there. And then we also have a um, set of recorded coaching sessions. The reason I did that is that I know that this sounds really weird in theory. You must be thinking, wait a minute. So Technicia has this doctor on, and he's got a pig inside of him, and what's, he doesn't need pig slop. What's, what's going on? So it sounds really harsh. It sounds dispassionate, but it's really very compassionate and kind-hearted, and you can see people transform from feeling hopeless and powerless and despairing to hopeful and enthusiastic and optimistic and um, just one session. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. You'll get those three things and a bunch more stuff, all, all for free. Well, thank you, Glenn. I really do appreciate that we got this chance to actually come together and be able to do this interview. I love it. I'm glad that you enlightened us with this issue that seems to be so undermined. People overlook it, but you have shown our light, and I'm hoping for everyone who's listening today to please share the replay, let your friends and family know. But before I leave you, I'd like to leave you with the truth of the day from my friend and former guest, Mary Ellen Signovich. Attune yourself to your inner compass. All spiritual and religious traditions serve the purpose of offering you a roadmap to guide you on your life journey. These teachings make up moral codes, parables, and values to live by in order to be more peaceful and more loving human beings. Be careful to choose the teachings spiritual or religious, that offer you the greatest blessing. You may feel called to change directions entirely as you attune your inner compass. Today, look at the roadmap you are following. Is it working for you? Enjoy the day, everyone. I'm going to see you the next time on the Bright Side with Technicia. And as I always say, God bless. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check. Thanks for listening to The Bright Side with Technicia. If you like what you heard, tell your dad, mother, cousin, uncle, whomever. Be sure to check out the archive section at www.brightsidewithtk.com.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.